Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Welcome to our last official episode of season one. We are so thankful you joined us over the last few months in your study preparation, and we hope you found some value in our information. We are joined today by Helen and Jessica, the two people behind PCS Advantage. We have talked about them so much over the course of this session. We absolutely loved them during our own prep, and we can't say enough good things about the PCS Advantage resource. They are kind enough to join us during this last question and answer session to help clear up some last minute things for you. So let's get to it. Someone requested some clarification on the prognosis and surgery indications for PBPI. They noted that there are many resources on this topic. Okay, so I made myself a little chart of the main resources to see what they all say. And I tried to summarize the main points. Like a lot of things, there's a lot of gray areas, but here's what I think. And remember, I don't write the test, but I think that if you can at least remember some of this information, you'll have a fair chance of answering the question correctly. So of the resources that we've kind of used over the course of this podcast, we have the case files book. So for them, they talked about prognosis as recovery of shoulder external rotation and forearm supination as their gold standard. For surgery, the best indicator was lack of recovery of the shoulder external rotators and forearm supinators. A total plexus with Horner's or no return of function meant surgery. If in three to four weeks, there was an early and full recovery, obviously that means no surgery. The rest is a gray area. And then also remember, there's other orthopedic surgeries to consider that don't necessarily relate to return of neurological function. The book does mention that the previous primary determinant of surgery was lack of biceps function. Campbell says the ideal surgery timeframe is between three and eight months. A complete injury with Horner's requires surgery by three months. And they also say that diminished or absence active shoulder external rotation and forearm supination plus a total active movement scale score is the most useful criteria. From those resources, I kind of went and looked at some of the citations for those. From one of the studies, it stated that initial symptoms directly postpartum were not found to be good prognostic indicators. And again, they said external rotation and supination were the last to recover and recovered the least. 
In this study, though, they said that the biceps function at three months was considered to be the best indicator for operative treatment. And then later, they state that external rotation and supination were found to be better in predicting eventual complete recovery. So in a study by Shaw, end-stage improvement was incomplete in children whose biceps recovery was delayed beyond three months. This chapter recommended surgical intervention at three months if the biceps muscle had not recovered. Although other researchers have followed more conservative guidelines, they have found that absent elbow flexion alone at three months can overestimate the poor final recovery. So what I get from this information is that biceps still can be used as an indicator, but a better indicator is recovery or lack of recovery of the shoulder, external rotators, and forearm supinators. This is where good test taking needs to come into play. Remember, they're going to ask you to choose the best answer. If biceps is on the list, but external shoulder rotators or supinators are not, then biceps is your best answer. If external rotators and supinators are on the list, then they're going to be your best answer. Another listener asked, what is the difference between the GMFM 88 and the GMFM 66? Okay, so I found this information directly from the Canchild website, and we're going to link that in the episode description. The GMFM 66 is valid for use in children with CP only. The 88 can be used for children with CP or Down syndrome. There is also some evidence for use of the GMFM 88 in osteogenesis imperfecta, leukemia, acute TBI, and SMA. So the 88 is the only one that can give individual dimension scores. The 88 has many more items that describe and assess gross motor function of very young children whose highest abilities might just be lying and rolling. You will have more items to assess their motor status. If you're interested in evaluating ambulatory aids or orthoses, which we often are, then you would want to use the 88. The GMFM 66 was developed using data from children who did not use any aids or orthoses. Also for the 66, you need the GMAE scoring system. So if you don't have that, you would need to administer the 88. Last, to chart change over time, the GMFM 66 will provide more meaningful assessment because the items are ordered by level of disability. Plus, using the GMAE software provides 95% confidence intervals, and with these, you can determine the extent of overlap and thus look and see if you have meaningful change. I hope this helps. Like I said, we're going to link the frequently asked questions from CanChild, and you can read a little bit more about what they say specifically. Just an extra um, tidbit of information, both the GMFM 88 and the 66 have minimal clinical important difference data for CP, but no published minimal detectable change values. So application of the MDC and the MCID values to clinical populations must also consider the age range and diagnostic groups included in the studies that derived those values. Another listener asked, what we should take away from the gross motor curves. So the gross motor curves were instrumental in establishing the GMFM 66 reference percentiles. I believe this reference is in our recommended reading list. It can also be found on the CanChild website, which offers a pretty detailed explanation. 
Clinically, the reference percentiles are a useful companion to the GMFM66 scores and could be used to compare a child's GMFM66 score to children in this same sample of children with a similar age and the same GMFCS level. So it's like having norms for motor development and CP based on age and GMFCS level. This type of information can be really helpful when describing results of the GMFM66 to parents and other professionals. I think I shared this in our stories a few weeks ago, but I found this statement in an article that I was reading about common surgeries in children with CP. It stated, quote, the GMFCS has a stable test-retest reliability indicating that a child's GMFCS level in general will remain constant over time. This allows service providers to assist parents in understanding the future method of mobility for their children. It goes exactly back to what Helen said. The information is helpful when describing results to parents. Another listener asked for clarification of the coarction of the aorta in terms of being acyanotic or cyanotic. So when I developed the study guide on cardiopulmonary conditions, I organized it by structural type of heart defects, whereas Campbell organized them by cyanotic versus acyanotic. I can see how this can be confusing. So the participant that asked this question is correct in that both coarctation of the, of the aorta and aortic stenosis are classified as acyanotic defects when present in isolation. However, they are often associated with other defects with overall classification as a cyanotic defect with hypoxemia. An example of this would be occurring with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So someone asked another question regarding PCS Advantage content. They had asked, parts of the PCS Advantage are super pertinent, but there are some major topics left out. Why? for example, torticollis or a specific CP study guide? So we didn't do a study guide on torticollis because there's a recently published clinical practice guideline that is very comprehensive. But we included at least seven exam questions related to CMT. Cerebral palsy is a monster topic, but we feel we addressed it to a pretty good extent across several study guides, such as outcome measures, neonatal practice, and motor control and learning. We also included over 60 exam questions related to CP to allow participants to identify their knowledge gaps. Since many pediatric PTs have a lot of knowledge regarding CP due to its prevalence in practice, we tried to focus our study guides on topics where knowledge gaps might be more likely to exist. Also, the Campbell chapter on CP is very comprehensive and the Can Child website has a wealth of information. We are always trying to figure out what other study guides might be helpful for people, primarily things that are scattered throughout resources, and it would be nice to have them all in one place. So each year we ask participants what topics they wish they would have had for study guides, and we base our future list on their feedback. Currently, future topics on our radar are pediatric cancer, vestibular evaluation and treatment, and limb deficiencies. But feel free to reach out to us if you have any other suggestions. One of our listeners actually had a great term, which they said, resource confusion. It might not be beneficial to constantly have different resources. Like Helen said, the CPG for torticollis is new and comprehensive, and I would probably argue it's the only resource you need on torticollis. So why add more things to your plate? Someone asked if we always adjust for prematurity under two on a standardized test. So the short answer is yes. 
Um, you should always correct for prematurity if a child is born before 37 weeks. Based on our practice and a NICU follow-up clinic and a search of online resources, there is consensus that you should stop correcting for prematurity at 24 months chronological age. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends adjusting age for preterm babies up to two years of age or 24 months. Um, as the general consensus is that the preterm infant should be caught up in terms of growth and development by that time. Also, be sure to read the manual for the specific standardized test that you're administering because they may have specific recommendations for age correction. Another listener asked if myelodysplasia is progressive due to primary impairment or mostly secondary impairments. So these questions are kind of hard because a lot of times the same question about CP will be asked. But in myelo, the primary impairment is the neural tube defect, which occurs in utero. There is the possibility of spinal cord damage during the surgical repair process after birth. However, the lesion then becomes stable. Individuals with myelo may experience a regression in function due to secondary impairments, such as joint contractures, muscle weakness, et cetera. Individuals are also at risk for central nervous system damage if they develop a shunt malfunction or infection or a tethered cord. So staying with this myodysplasia topic, we also received a question about myelomeningocele and orthotics relating back to the favorite topic of knee extension strength and whether we use a KAFO or an AFO. According to Campbell, if a child has adequate knee extension strength, good or strong, then an AFO is appropriate for ambulation. There was not a great resource for this as far as exact manual muscle grades go, but just remember that if they have adequate muscle strength in a joint, such as the knee, then the brace will not need to support or control that joint. Looking back at my notes from PT school, my professor indicated that if there is a significant weakness present from T12 to L3, an RGO or KAFO is used. If knee extension strength is less than or equal to three plus out of five, then a KAFO or HKAFO is used. If knee extension is greater than three plus out of five, an AFO or less can be used. If plantar flexion or dorsiflexion strength is less than three plus out of five, an AFO is used. If plantar flexion or dorsiflexion strength is greater than three plus out of five, then an SMO should be used. I would not necessarily take these as absolute definites to the test with you, but it kind of gives you an idea. I would go by what is listed for spina bifida and JIA as, as that is when we saw this most frequently. There was a lot of discussion about this during our live forum. And I think the most important thing to remember when reading a question about Milo is to make sure you are not confusing the lesion level and the motor level of the child. So children with L3 lesions might look very different when compared directly to one another. Just how the motor skills of children with CP and GMFCS level two can differ from one child to another. Children all with a lesion level of L3 can also differ from one to another. Um, so a child with a L3 lesion and three plus out of five quad strength may be able to use an AFO and an assistive device for household distances instead of using a bulkier and heavier KAFO. However, outside of the home and for longer distances, a KAFO would be needed if they are not using a manual wheelchair. 
The question should provide you with all the clues you need to make an educated guess as to what the correct answer might be in regards to orthoses or assistive devices. Um, I think it is more important to focus on the information and the question that reports motor function and muscle strength, since clinically we use that information to determine orthoses and assistive devices and not necessarily the lesion level. So in terms of a resource that I found that was helpful and that we use in some of our information for PCS Advantage, uh, the Spina Bifida Association has a really great PDF titled Level of Spina Bifida Function. Um, so you could always check that one out. Yeah, I think that is the one I actually copy and pasted into my like final study guide because I just felt like it was a very, one, it's from a trusted resource and it was very comprehensive. But I really liked what Jessica said. Uh, so much of this comes down to test-taking strategies and it's really easy for us to read Campbell and want Campbell to tell us exactly what to do in each situation, but that is not how we function as clinicians. And this test is about becoming an expert clinician. And so you need to read the clues in the question. And if you get to it and you have no idea, take a breath and reread the question and see if you can pick out one additional clue that might help you. Like exactly what Jessica said, if they're asking if the child can walk a mile, versus if the child can walk around their house for 15 feet, you're going to answer that question differently. And the same lesion level is going to bring you to a different answer. So make sure you are using the clues in the question and just take a moment and see if you can figure out what those clues are because they're giving them to you. It's there. You just really have to just take a moment and just answer the question using the clues. Another listener asked for examples of interdisciplinary versus multidisciplinary team models. I think there's a lot of confusion on these two topics because I feel like they're used interchangeably when they shouldn't be. But multidisciplinary is when there are well-defined discipline-specific roles and professionals work independently. However, they recognize the value and the contributions of other disciplines. An example could be when a child sees multiple different outpatient physicians or clinicians, such as a neurologist, cardiologist, physical therapist, or occupational therapist. They recognize the contributions from each practice, but they're not necessarily working together to plan and implement treatments. Interdisciplinary is when discipline-specific roles are well-defined, but individuals from different disciplines work together cooperatively on planning, implementation, and evaluation of services. An example of this is in a school setting when teachers and clinicians come together to create an IEP and educationally relevant goals for a child. Another example might be a hospital-based specialty clinic where a child might have annual visits with a team of professionals to manage their care. Ooh, I like that example. Research is always a topic that gets a lot of questions. We had a lot of discussion about research concepts. Do we have any last minute pearls that could help? Well, I will say that research is tough. My last batch of research questions focused on interpreting information in a journal article, because I think it is reasonable, a reasonable expectation for, that a clinical specialist be able to read a journal article and understand the content. It's very different being able to design and carry out a study than to being able to interpret the information in a journal article. My guess, however, is that there's a lot of overlap on the exam between evidence-based practice and research. 
but I'm not really sure because it's been a couple of decades since I took the exam. So I think it is helpful to read through some articles in a journal like Pediatric PT or PTJ and see if you can understand the stats in some basic articles. This helps me to try to translate the research and infos, um, research info and stats knowledge into something that is actually real. So as easy as it is for me to say that, I'm gonna hand it off to Helen to give you an example. So I reviewed an article this morning in the October 2021 volume of Pediatric Physical Therapy. It is by Lempanin Lashat. Um, I will say that that's probably not the correct pronunciation of that last name. The title of the article was um, Multidimensional Effects of Solid and Hinged Ankle Foot Orthoses in Children with Cerebral Palsy. So the study compared the wear of solid and hinged AFOs in children with CP and GMFCS levels 1, 2, and 3 using multiple impairment and activity level outcome measures. The study is cross-sectional since the participants were stratified across the age range of 4 to 14 years and only one study visit was conducted. There was one visit to collect data from all of the outcome measures. The study contained two groups, one for each type of orthosis. The statistical analyses in the study would mirror many intervention studies because this is a comparison between two different groups, such as if two different groups received two different interventions and the results were compared. Here are some important aspects of the study to consider. The inclusion and exclusion criteria is described very well in the method section. This helps us understand the limits of generalizability of the results. Only children with CP and GMFCS levels 1, 2, and 3 are included. Therefore, the study isn't applicable to children in other GMFCS levels or with other diagnoses. Participants were described as having true Aquinas or jump gait patterns. Therefore, the results wouldn't be applicable to children with CP who demonstrate a crouch gait pattern. The alpha level for the study was set at 0.05 for all analyses. This is a common value in our research. Statistical values that are less than 0.05 mean that the groups are different. Statistical values that are greater than 0.05 mean that the groups are not different based on the analyses. Because 0.05 is less than one, you have to be careful that you are interpreting less than and greater than accurately. I always have to stop and think and do the math on that to make sure that I've, got, I've interpreted everything correctly. An example of when we might ex expect to see groups be not different would be baseline measures when groups are expected to look similar prior to an intervention. In this particular study that I reviewed, there were different and not different statistical results across the variables being studied. The only variables that were different between the two groups, which are the orthotic conditions, were stride length, velocity, and functional reach test scores. And these were only different for the group that walked without an assistive device wearing hinged AFOs. Therefore, the authors accurately say in the discussion that children with CP who demonstrate a true Aquinas or jump gait and walk without use of an assistive device, so they're in GMFCS levels one and two, might benefit the most from a hinged AFO. Children who walk with an assistive device did not show any differences across the variables. Therefore, either type of AFO appeared to provide similar benefit. The main table of results also includes standard deviation values with each mean score, 
which is typical. Higher standard deviation values mean there was greater variability in study participant scores for that variable. Generally, lower standard deviation values are preferred, and that would indicate that the study participants in that group were more similar than different for that particular variable. That was awesome. I feel like even I learned something there in terms of just looking at research studies. I also suggest when you guys are all done with studying for this test to not lose all of this good knowledge. The first thing I did was I started to volunteer for some review groups for people creating CPGs because it forced me to start to really read research and continue to use these skills that I've gained to be a better physical therapist. Hopefully Helen will come back next year and just do many more of those analyses for our podcast. So piggybacking on that, we had another question, which I feel like is a fan favorite, which is sensitivity and specificity. This is always a hot topic, and it's a hot topic because it's so, so challenging. Clearly, Helen is our research question go-to, so we're going to let her explain it a little bit. So I agree that this is a really challenging concept, and I will honestly say that um, I often go back and look at my notes before I start to interpret any information in a study about sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity is a true positive rate. So it is the likelihood that someone with the condition will be positive on the diagnostic test. This refers to the percentage of children who are correctly identified as meeting criteria for a condition. This is valuable for confirming a diagnosis such as gross motor delay or cerebral palsy. 80% sensitivity is preferable. On the other hand, specificity is a true negative rate. And this is the likelihood that someone who does not have the condition will be negative on the diagnostic test. So it refers to the percentage of children without problems who are currently identified as such. This is valuable to rule out the presence of a condition. 90% is preferable for a diagnostic test. So let's look at a couple of specific examples. For the temp, specificity is higher, indicating it is a good measure for detecting large numbers of high-risk infants who are not developing typically. So it rules out gross motor delay. And these infants have delayed posture and motor development, which is its intended purpose. Sensitivity is much lower, So it is not as sensitive for identifying or confirming CP because that is not what it was designed to do. The AIMS has been found to be more beneficial when administered at critical age ranges, while the fifth centile cutoff value is best to identify the most delayed children and those likely to have CP because of high specificity and relatively high sensitivity. The 10th centile cutoff is best for identification of the greatest number of infants with abnormal motor development because of high sensitivity. There is always a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. For a screening test in which early diagnosis is beneficial, when it is desirable to identify all those at risk for having a condition, high sensitivity is preferable to high specificity. We often get asked about more study-specific questions. One that came up was, what was your study strategy after you finished Campbell? Sarah and I talk a lot about this in our very early episodes, 
we finished reviewing Campbell early in our study group. So we finished like back in August for our March test date. So our group members were each tasked at the time with completing study guides for the chapters of Campbell. So as we continued studying September through test day, we used our Campbell study guides along with all of the other resources and information to continue to review content. We grouped Campbell chapters, case study materials, research, and other supplemental texts with similar topic areas. And then we kind of used MedBridge to help us group everything together. So for example, orthopedic conditions, neural conditions, school-based environments, we kind of grouped all of the similar resources and then used our study guides that we had created early on to continue to kind of review Campbell without going back and actually rereading the entire chapter again. Again, we talk a lot about our study plan in the early episodes, and Sarah shared an example on our Instagram page a couple months back about what our study plan looked like. Like Sheila said, we finished Campbell very early on, and we really didn't start studying like super hard until the first week of November. We kind of gave ourselves that time from, you know, sign up of the test until the end of October to really read Campbell, get ourselves into gear back into that study grind because all of the, us have been removed from school for so long that getting back into that study groove was really important to us too. Some people that we have talked to via Instagram message finished Campbell much later than we did. So the biggest strategy we would suggest is to tap into those other resources, like Sheila said, PCS Advantage for good study guides and content, MedBridge for watching videos, if that's your thing, the case files book for additional practice with specific cases and definitely utilizing the practice test. As I read through Campbell, I highlighted a lot of the information that I really wanted to review again. And then once I finished the book, I went through the highlighted materials again and made myself a study guide of the material. Um, and then I used this study guide as my final resource when reviewing for the test about one to two weeks out. I used other things, other textbooks, other kind of review summaries and things like that. Notes from school, notes from residency. I also did a lot of panic studying right before the test, which I definitely do not recommend because realistically, none of that information really absorbed into my brain and it only stressed me out more. So I'd say once you have that solid foundation, just trust in that and don't scramble at the end because it's not a fun time. And evidence shows that quizzing each other in small groups to test your ability to recall knowledge is one of the best strategies to study. This has consistently been found to be more effective than rereading written materials. So my husband, who is also in research and has studied for a lot of big exams, always really challenged me to recall information when he quizzed me. Same thing with flashcards, for example. Like you really need to try and allow yourself time to recall the information before you flip that card over. Otherwise, you're really just reading the material in just a different way. So challenge yourself to bring that information forward in your brain, and you really will solidify the knowledge. Often the information is there, but you need to give yourself time to bring it forward. Going off what Sheila said too, we've talked a lot about Quizlet, that we used Quizlet kind of towards the end, and which I had no idea you could even do this on Quizlet, but you can create a test based on the Quizlets where you have to not only just like verb, like think about it or verbally say, you have to type in the answer in like as a short answer question. 
um, or you can do the flashcards in a multiple choice fashion, which I found really helpful rather than just clicking on the flashcards and reading them and then trying to answer it. It made me learn it in a little bit of a different way and actually truly recall the information. Another question was, what was a realistic amount to dedicate per week to studying? All right. So I want to be careful here because we are approaching the bitter end for you guys. So like, let's not freak ourselves out. But we talk about this a lot in our early episodes because this is a very hard question to answer. Most of us studying are also professionals and we're likely balancing work and studying and families and everything else. So this is going to depend so much on your personal schedule and how long you've been studying for in general. Some weeks I studied more than others. I tried to be as consistent as possible, devoting at least one to two hours a night with some extra time on days that I had off from work or weekends. I also started reviewing Campbell early in June before the March test date. So I started my one to two hour plan most days about nine months before I took the test. If you start closer to your test, you may just need more time. Ultimately, as you start studying, you're going to start to gauge how long it's taking you to get through the material and if you need to ramp up your time or if you can ramp it down a little bit. I don't think it's wise to go into the test not at least having read Campbell thoroughly. That includes spending some time on expert consult case studies. Additionally, clearly we feel like the fact sheets from the APTA website are a huge asset and probably deserve a lot of your attention. Kind of like Sheila said, it really depends on you and your life as far as studying goes. I was able to dedicate two to three hours twice a week to studying and then studied all day on the weekends. I started off a few hours on the weekends in an hour or so during the week um, initially. And then once November hit, I really ramped up my study time. When COVID hit in March of 2020, me being a school-based therapist, schools were closed. So I had a lot of extra time on my hands initially before we figured out how to provide services via telehealth. So I started getting myself back into the study groove, knowing I was planning to study for the exam by reading two case studies from the case files book a week and taking notes on them. This helped my group later on in our studying because we had them as an extra resource. I had the luxury of being able to study on the weekends, but not everyone has that same time. I began reading Campbell front to back at my own pace in August, in addition to what we were doing as a group with a goal to finish it by the end of October. I had a very specific time frame in my mind and started studying based on this time frame. I created a study calendar for myself centered around reading Campbell. So I would say on Monday, I want to read pages, blah, through blah, and then try to meet those goals each day and, and, and each week. And then I would also add in some other texts that I wanted to read, such as the Efkin book. I did an hour or so during the week and then assigned myself bigger chunks of the texts during the weekends. This worked for me. I had myself and a dog to take care of. So I did not have a family that I had to keep track of, children to keep alive, just a dog. So everyone's different in terms of what they can do and what they can commit to. So I would just kind of look at your schedule, understand yourself and what you can do and how much time you can put in during the week versus the weekends, and then make your schedule based on that. And everybody in our group was totally different. We had two people with kids in our group, two people without kids in our group, some people working full-time, some people working part-time, some people planning weddings, you know, there was so many different circumstances. And guess what? Everyone in our group passed. 
We all figured it out. We made it work. So there is just no right answer here. It's just figuring out what's going to work for you and your family and sticking to your goals. I think that that's probably the most important thing is once you create your plan, you got to stick with it because having a plan that you don't stick to isn't really helpful. So we also had a question asking what setting we thought that the test was most geared towards. And I feel like the test spans all practice areas, all conditions. I mean, I did not come out of it feeling like anything was hit harder than something else. Yes, I would agree. Um, Expect the questions to cover all areas of pediatric practice. And if you're trying to figure out how to best use these last few weeks in regards to studying, maybe focus on the areas that you do not typically practice in. So if you work in the schools, maybe review acute care and sports information a little bit more. If you work in acute care, review outpatient developmental and schools a little bit more. And then, of course, the topics of research and professional issues are for everyone because those are the ones that tend to be forgotten or just dreaded. Another test-specific question. When did you find out the results from the test? I believe I got my results in early July. So expect your results around four months after you take the test. I did just recently look at my certificate and it's dated for May. And so they made me suffer like an extra month and a half before they actually told me that I had passed the test when they knew it all along. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, expect it there to be quite a delay. Yes. I think I remember somewhere in the candidate guide, I think it says, June. And so I think a lot of us got excited. And I think somehow I put mid June in my mind. And we definitely got our results on June 29th. I know because I was on vacation. And I knew it was coming in the next couple of days, we were running out of days in June. And so I was wondering if it was gonna make my vacation better or ruin my vacation. So it did make my vacation better. Another listener asked, do you know what happens if you don't pass? I reached out to the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties to help answer this question, and per their response, if a candidate fails the exam, they do need to follow the same process to reapply. The only difference is that the reapplication fee is only, in huge quotes, $170 compared to the regular application fee of $525. And then once you start the reapplication process and pay the fee, all of the information from the previous cycle will be transferred over. You will have a chance to review and edit the application before your resubmission. And then the exam fee is going to still be the same fee. And they quoted me at $810 for an APTA member. And if I remember correctly, that is only applicable if you retake the exam the immediate following year. Like you can't take it two or three years down the road and still have that reduced reapplication fee. So something to be thoughtful of, but we're all going to just pass this test so we don't have to worry about it. So someone then asked us who makes the practice tests. And that's pretty much the only two sources of practice test information that I know of are the PCS Advantage and MedBridge. So we're unsure of who actually makes the tests for MedBridge. Some of the questions are directly from the comprehension sections in the course itself. So I would guess that they're submitted by the presenter. This is why we kind of took the MedBridge questions with a grain of salt. We don't really think that they're vetted to be item writer level quality. I did, when I was at CSM, go up to the MedBridge tent and gave them feedback on their tests. 
and said it should be all more encompassing because I felt like if you didn't watch that specific video, you weren't going to get those questions right on those practice exams. But that being said, they still do help you test your comprehension and get you into the test taking mode. So we do think that there is value. At the end of the day, you will likely not feel 100% prepared for this exam, but I feel like that is a reality. You just have to do the best you can. For PCS Advantage, Helen and I make all of the practice tests. Helen had some training and writing test questions, and then I took a crash course from Helen, and together we made the questions. We used an interactive process to try to capture any errors or unclear questions. We go through all of the questions yearly to make sure that they're up to date. So someone also asked why we decided to do this podcast. And so it really comes back to the whole time I was studying. I wished that there was some sort of podcast to deliver information to my ear during moments when I could be multitasking. I really love podcasts in general, and I am a very variable learner. I like to hear and receive information in many different forms. There just wasn't really a podcast out there that was focused on just this test. There are some good PT podcasts, and I've shared a few episodes that I felt were pediatric focused, but I really wanted to give people studying for this specific exam an option. Sarah and I knew we were not going to be getting 10,000 listeners. This is a niche podcast, and we are happy to be hopefully helping you all. And selfishly, I'm really happy to be reviewing all of this content again. I didn't want to lose all of the wonderful knowledge I had worked so hard to get during my year of studying. So I'm continuing to use it so I don't lose it. And I popped on to the podcast because Sheila needed a partner to get it started with. I am a huge podcast junkie. I listen to them all the time. So I thought that this was not only going to be fun, but hopefully helpful for everybody listening. If I had a podcast that I could have listened to while studying, you better believe I would have listened. Someone also asked us what we envision the podcast looking like in future years. And we feel like this is a great way to end our season one. Our plan for next year looks similar, but instead of going through the fifth edition of Campbell, we're planning to go over chapters that were not included in the fifth edition, such as burns and genetics, as well as add in episodes on the clinical summaries, case studies from the case files book, and more research specific topics and important CPGs and articles that are frequently recommended. For future years, we hope to be able to continue going through pertinent content, such as the evidence-based practice book, Afghan, and any new Campbell chapters. We will also continue to update our fact sheet Fridays as new fact sheets come out. Our goal is to also potentially include more interviews with experts that would provide listeners information to focus on while studying for the PCS exam. And that brings us to the end. We are so excited for you guys in the coming weeks and we'll be thinking good thoughts and sending all the smart vibes your way. We're so thankful to Helen and Jessica for joining us today. They have been helping people pass this test much longer than we have, and they've been so wonderful in helping us answer your questions. So now I'm going to put everybody on the spot and ask them to give you one last piece of advice for test day. So I'll go first. My piece of advice is my favorite advice for life in general. This is how I get through being a military spouse. And the advice is, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. On test day, just take it one question at a time. You don't need 100% to pass this test and there will be content you do not know. Just keep eating that elephant.
I would say my piece of advice is take the test like you've always successfully taken tests. For me, that was taking every single break that was offered, whether it was just to take a few minutes to breathe, whether it was to go to the bathroom if I needed to go to the bathroom to eat a snack or grab some water. I take tests slowly. So for me, that was what I think helped me get through that rather than trying to rush through the test and not sit and actually read questions. So I might suggest that when you're doing your practice uh, test questions, make sure that you understand um, why the responses, the ones that are incorrect, how you understand that they are incorrect or why they are incorrect, um, not just being able to find the one correct answer. I just kind of look at that may be a way to um, deepen your your knowledge retrieval because you're not only thinking about one aspect of information related to that topic, but you're you're going through multiple aspects of content. And on that too, if you're all out of practice exams, if you've already taken all the ones that are available to you, that could be another way where you could revisit those practice exams and use them in a different way to still have some preparation for test day. Something else I did too, along with that is I am a person who needs to take my practice exams the exact same way that I'm going to take the real exam. So I made, you know, when I took my practice exam, I had no water. I had did not have my phone around me. I was in a quiet space and tried to practice like I was taking the test in the Prometric Center. I also took two practice exams that I had taken previously. I took two 100 question tests back to back, giving myself those same breaks that I would get in between every 50 questions to kind of simulate what it would feel like on test day. And that helped me to feel more prepared just of what to expect rather than necessarily content, but just expecting how the day was kind of going to go. All right, Jessica, what is your final piece of advice? Okay. My piece of advice would be don't dwell on a question that you have answered and moved on from whether you answered it correctly or incorrectly at that point, it doesn't matter. Focus on the next question in front of you instead of putting any energy in past questions, all of the energy should be the question in front of you. I tend to be a dweller and it's not helpful. I just, you just need to focus on what you're doing at that moment and that question and then move forward. Ellen and I would like to congratulate you too, Sheila and Sarah, on your first season of Pushing Pediatrics. We loved listening to it and also a nice refresher for us too and coming up with some new exam questions based on your subject each week. So it's been helpful for us too, just to kind of get that nice little refresh. So congratulations to both of you. Aw, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.